Specialty Story, session number 49. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you will want to practice. This podcast is here to tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. Before I get started, I want to give a special shout out to whoever it was at the University of Colorado School of Medicine who posted this podcast, the Specialty Stories, in the group for the first years. Now, the person who posted it didn't know that I actually teach at the medical school. And so I showed up to to teach today and the, the day I'm recording this and two of the students were like, hey, I, you, your voice sounds familiar. And they're like, oh, I listen to your podcast. So I thought that was pretty cool. So thank you for sharing that. If you are at a medical school and you have a private Facebook group or whatever you use to communicate, I would love for you to share this podcast with your fellow classmates. This week, we're talking to Dr. Victor Mangona, who is a pediatric radiation oncologist who specializes in proton therapy, which is pretty rare here in the United States. And Victor talks all about the number of proton therapy centers here in the U.S. and was very open and honest about some of the struggles with proton therapy, with radiation oncology, and whether or not the viability of of radiation oncology with proton therapy is something that will be here in the future. So it was a great interview. There were some sound quality issues for about half of it, and then it cleared up magically. So stay with it. It's a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. We dive in first by talking to Victor about what originally got him interested in pediatric radiation oncology. I think it was actually just at the end of my third year of uh, medical school, so my M3 year, I didn't really know much about the specialty. I'd heard a little bit about the specialty from some friends that I actually just met out one one night, and they were telling me about the specialty. I realized I was later on that I was actually um, basically hanging out at a bar with like the half of the residency program uh, at my, because uh, the, the residency programs are so small. Um, they're usually three per year at a big place. Uh, so this was in Detroit at uh, Wayne State University. So I'd heard about it, and then I didn't rotate uh, in the rotation until July of my fourth year. And at that point, then I knew that's what I wanted to go into. I had initially thought about doing interventional radiology for quite a long time, but having rotated in that in my third year, I realized they didn't have the continuity of care I was looking for, and that radiation oncology actually was kind of a good balance between continuity of care, but also being able to have kind of a procedure-oriented, technologically advanced type of specialty in medicine. What was it about Rad Onc that you were having this discussion with your buddies, and you're like, oh, yeah, this really is piquing my interest? So I had initially wanted to do something technologically oriented. I wanted something that could continue to change with technology so that I wouldn't be in a specialty that would basically, in a sense, um, become phased out with newer technology. I also really enjoyed pediatrics and pediatric subspecialization. And in radiation oncology, I could do both adult and pediatrics at the same time. So I actually uh, uh, ended up doing a pediatric fellowship in radiation oncology so that I could uh, really have a lot of expertise in treating the children, but I also treat adults. My practice is about 50-50. 
What traits do you think lead to being a good rad onk duck? Well, there are multiple board exams. So just as a something that's important to just be aware of before kind of heading down the path, radiation oncology has a board exam in physics and a board exam in radiation biology, in addition to the board exams for radiation oncology itself, the clinical boards. So, and those are both written and oral. So there's actually four board exams. So if you really are averse to physics, I would advise people not to pursue the path because the radiation oncology physics uh, boards can be challenging and it is uh, a core portion of our training. Uh, So that is one very important thing to know about. There aren't any other specialties that have additional boards like physics anymore. Radiology, diagnostic radiology used to have separate boards, but now all of their boards have been basically combined. All of the written boards have been combined. So they don't have a separate test just for, uh, for example, physics. So uh, that does keep our specialty uh, somewhat separate from others. And it is something very important to know. So one, you need to be comfortable with doing further physics studying uh, during training and taking those boards. It is important to understand that you're taking potentially long-term care of, uh, of patients. A lot of times, you know, we, we see patients, we treat them for, uh, let's say, two or three months, but then you're uh, seeing them again for follow-up every three months for, you know, for a year, and then we usually start spacing it out. But you'll still see f- patients for years and years at follow-up, and if they have recurrences, you're often treating them again. Um, so you do build relationships with your patients, uh, and that is something that's both a plus and a minus and really something that is independent to a person. But you certainly get to know the people you're treating in the specialty, and that is something that is what drew me to this as opposed to some other specialties where I wouldn't necessarily have that real feel like I'm taking ownership in, in a person's ongoing care. Let's talk briefly just about radiation oncology because even today, I was at the medical school and, and a student was saying, oh yeah, the, I shadowed a radiation oncologist and I showed up to radiology the day I was supposed to shadow him and, and he was like, yeah, I'm not there. Where, <laughs> why do students, number one, think that radiation oncology is part of radiology and how do you guys fit in with oncology? That's very interesting. Yeah, so it's a very common confusion. Honestly, I feel like most doctors don't really know what radiation oncology is in the first place. Um, Part of that is in medical school, there's in general no requirement for having any experience in radiation oncology, even in the you know, introductory didactic courses, so people are not familiar with it. So, I mean, just the term radiation, in general, people think that's related to radiology. Um, often doctors think that, yeah, even, you know, practicing doctors, even people I'm on the phone with with insurance, they think that I'm a radiologist. Um, it's, it's honestly quite frustrating. But historically, radiology, diagnostic radiology used to be one specialty and radiation oncology was just a fellowship training afterwards. So, initially had basically become this branch called therapeutic radiology. And to this day, the American Association is called the American Society, ASTRO, which stands for the American Society for Therapeutic Radiation Oncology. Um, because our name has changed, um, they uh, we don't actually say that anymore, but we still call it ASTRO. Um, but <laughs> that's just cool. So that just, yeah, it's actually Astro with like without a T. The T doesn't stand for anything anymore. It's really the association for our American Society of Radiation Oncology, but uh, we still call it Astro. So yes, historically we were a branch of that specialty, but now we are uh, completely independent. Uh, our training is completely separate from theirs, and so we are completely different now. 
The second part of your question, can you re- remind me? How do you guys fit in with oncology? Oh, oncology. So we, we, we treat cancer patients, so that's what we do. And oncology comes from the root onco, which means cell. Um, so basically, cancer is effectively uh, pathology of the cell, right? So cancer is oncology, and radiation oncology is just a subset of cancer care um, that deals with, with using radiation. So energy, which can be delivered with uh, external radiation or internal radiation, um, there's different modalities. So we're part of the integral portion of treating cancer patients. Now, different cancers are treated with different treatments, but in general, there's kind of a, a triangle of the therapeutic arms, one of which is surgical intervention, one of which is chemotherapy, which is for systemic management, and radiation, which is another local treatment. Now, there's also other uh, treatments as well. Uh, interventional radiology also has things like radiofrequency ablation, which are also used for cancer management. And that is also kind of a separate uh, little branch of diagnostic radiology or interventional radiology, which I think in the future is going to become its own separate specialty called interventional oncology. And there's, there's been already some motion to do that um, because there are people whose entire practice is things like um, radiofrequency ablation or liver-directed therapies that interventional radiologists do. So that is a separate, another extra branch. Um, but ultimately, uh, yeah, radiation is another local therapy, uh, which is often done uh, instead of surgery or in concert with surgery as a after treatment uh, for further local control. It really is very dependent on what the particular type of cancer is and stage and different things in terms of where we fall in in the overall treatment scheme. So what sort of patients are you treating? What sort of pathologies do you see? Um, so me personally, and I'm uh, an exception to almost all radiation oncologists, I have a very busy pediatric practice. So I treat probably about 70 new kids per year, um, which is really one of the busiest pediatric practices in the country. And that's about half my practice. So I treat different kinds of uh, pediatric tumors, um, most often brain tumors, but also other solid tumors in the body. The other half of my practice is a a smattering of different adult tumors, mostly CNS or brain spinal cord tumors, because that's what my area of specialty was uh, during fellowship, was brain and pediatric tumors. So that's me personally. If you look at most radiologists in, for example, the community setting, um, it will be uh, a lot of prostate cancer, breast cancer, uh, lung cancer, um, the most common cancers being the most common. Um, and so that can often make up the bulk of a community physician's practice, often easily 80% or more um, could be those three pathologies. Describe a typical day. I'll often go to tumor board at 7 o'clock, which is a discussion amongst the uh, radiation oncologists, uh, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiologists, pathologists discussing new cases. I'll often do that from 7 to 8 at a hospital, uh, and then I'll go over to my, my clinic, and then I will, on one day of the week, I'll see all my patients that I'm currently receiving radiation. So people who receive radiation usually receive it once a day, Monday through Friday for often about six weeks or so. So once a week, I will see all of my patients who are currently on treatment. Other days, I will see new patients or I will see patients who I'm following up from previous treatment. I will also do what's called radiation treatment planning. So if a patient is a new patient and they need treatment, 
Uh, we'll do a CT scan with them uh, in our facility. We will make a special immobilization device so that they're in the same position every day for treatment. And I will uh, also then basically do all the radiation plan in the computer, which is delineating all the target volumes, which will be the tumor, lymph nodes, uh, and organs at risk. And then I work with a team of other people to help design the treatment. Basically, I'm kind of like the, the architect of a building. I come up with a plan, and then I have other people help design and execute the plan. So there's, it's kind of like, uh, in a sense, uh, I hate to make this analogy because it'll, I don't want to offend people, but it's kind of like being, you know, a surgeon does their surgery in the operating room. We do our effectively our procedure uh, virtually on a computer. The benefit of which you can basically do all of your decision making basically not in the real time. So you can actually um, do all this in advance of the patient actually receiving any radiation treatment. Um, so you can basically go back and forth and modify things until you have the plan exactly the way you want to. So basically, it's, it's mostly a clinic-based specialty. Some people will do some procedures and do internal radiation, but that's also often done in a radiation facility. Um, but um, I'll often be at work from, for example, 8 o'clock, and then the end of my day varies, but a regular day is like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, one day a week, I'm usually there later because we're treating patients until, let's say, 8 o'clock at night. So one of the physicians has to be there until we're done treating. Other days, I have to go to some tumor boards at the end of the day. So then I get done a little bit earlier. So it's variable. It really depends on what kind of practice you work at. If you're at a private facility and you're the only physician, if you have a very busy practice, you could be there for very long hours every day, Monday through Friday. You could be at a small practice or you could be at a practice with, let's say, multiple doctors, and then you can often set up your schedules so that, uh, for example, you could work four days a week, which I think is great if you work at a, uh, with a group that makes that happen. You still have to put in your time ultimately, but it's nice to be able to free up that space. In general, we don't work on weekends, which is one of the biggest perks of our specialty because there really are very, very few emergencies in radiation oncology. So we treat people Monday through Friday, and we don't treat them on the weekends. So in general, uh, we don't have to pretty much ever work on a weekend. So very little call then? Uh, yeah, we don't really, <laughs> we don't really do call, not, especially not at my practice. If you're in a hospital-based practice, there will be more inpatient call. But in general, most people know that there aren't really radiation emergencies that require treatment after hours. Pretty much everything can be treated at seven o'clock the following morning. But just because our kind of treatment requires a, a large team of people, it's not like one person going in can just do everything themselves. I actually really can't do anything myself. I'm dependent on a whole team of other people who help drive the machines. And in general, uh, unless it's a, a very rare emergency, like a, a new onset spinal cord compression or a very bad SVC syndrome or respiratory distress, in general, radiation can, can wait another 12 hours. It, Usually, it's very rare that that little amount of time will make any difference in somebody's prognosis, and you can usually start steroids or other things to um, buy some time in the meantime. Do you feel like you have enough time for family? Overall, I do. Um, I work at a, a private practice, and our volume varies. So sometimes I am very busy, and sometimes I am not that busy. And so sometimes I have a lot of time, sometimes I have time. Uh, one of the difficulties uh, about radiation oncology is that because you kind of have ownership of your patients, they, a lot of your work is attached to you. 
there's, it's not a shift work specialty, uh, where, you know, when you're not there, everything else just goes along. You pretty much have your own patients. So I have to take care of my own patients. So when I, uh, when my, when I practice gets really busy in one week, uh, there'll be some days that I, I come home very late. Other weeks I'll come home at very reasonable hours, but in general, I always have my weekends off. Uh, we have been trying to take, make four day weeks for the most part. And I would say, Two out of the two weeks out of the uh, month, I'm pretty. I can usually do that, and the the others. Uh, sometimes I go in for like a half day. There's usually there's always one Friday I have to go in and cover the clinic from morning until night. Uh, I work at a place with three physicians, and uh, you know we rotate that. But I mean, I still put my hours in on the other days. But we try to make sure that we protect each other's time off, and we work together doing that, which is one of the benefits of being in a group practice. What is the path to become a radiation oncologist look like as far as residency training? So it's five years in total. You do a transitional year usually as your intern year. You could also do a preliminary year in another specialty, but most all of us do transitional years. And it's nice, especially if you're working at a place that allows you to rotate in like medical oncology or pediatric oncology or ENT, urology, you get to uh, see those other specialties and spend more time in them than you might have had the opportunity in, in medical school. So you do your one year, then you do four years of radiation oncology residency. Most programs have uh, one to three residents per year. So a big program has like three per year and a small program has about one per year. Um, there are some programs that have like six per year, but those are the rare exception. The great thing about being in a big program is the call is split up amongst a bigger pool. So that's always really important to look out for when you're picking a program. And then after that fifth year of residency, uh, you find a job. Uh, you go to academics or private practice. Now, I did a fellowship and I've did a fellowship focusing in pediatric uh, radiation, uh, brain tumors, and uh, effectively using proton radiation, which is what I, I work at a facility that only offers proton radiation. There are about uh, 20 to 25 uh, facilities open now in the country. Uh, so there are not many of us. So that's part of the reason I got my specialized training. I wanted to uh, work with children with protons. And so I did a fellowship, but there are only a handful of people a year who do fellowships uh, in radiation oncology uh, in terms of people who trained in the United States. And there are certainly people who were trained in uh, other countries who do fellowships in the United States to have some opportunity to get some clinical training here. But for uh, American residents, that's the significant exception. That may certainly change over time, especially if the job market tightens up again. But in the meantime, fellowships are, are few and far between. How competitive is radiation oncology to match into? I I would say it's pretty much very competitive. On a scale of one to five, it's definitely a five. It's up and down. Some years it gets very, very, very competitive. Other years it's a little bit less. Just uh, that goes up and down. But in general, it's it's very, very competitive. Uh, I went to school with 300 students, I think, and there were three of us, um, which was actually the biggest class to go into radiation oncology for. A uh, number of years. Uh, most medical schools will have maybe one person go into radiation oncology, some zero. Um, there are, I think, I don't know the numbers now, but um, when I was in training, there were about 100 and maybe 160 or so going in per year. Now there's probably around 200 or so per year, maybe it's higher. Um, but that's still, in comparison to the number of medical schools, you're looking at about one to two 
per medical school across the board. What makes a competitive applicant? Well, you know, the typical, typical <laughs> things, <laughs> good grades, good board scores. Yep. But that's really just the and that's really just to get your foot in the door for the most part. And you don't necessarily need to have, you know, both of those things. There are exceptions. Um, a large percentage of our field are people who have MD, PhDs. So if you have an MD, PhD, that puts you in, in general, a whole different category. When I was applying, probably about half of the uh, trainees across the country were MD, PhDs. Now that programs have expanded, I think that number has gone down, but it's still a a very high percentage. It may be the highest percentage amongst all specialties. I'm not sure about that. A PhD, good scores, uh, good grades, honors, etc. But ultimately, and and research publications and residency are in residency are very important. Uh, or sorry, in medical school are very important. The most important thing really is whether or not you can find somebody who wants to uh, take you into their training program. And it only takes one residency spot, one person, basically, to convince to let you train there. So um, especially if people are not the strongest applicants, I, I would advise against trying to just spread super wide and you know, just apply everywhere to try to get an to one place, although I, I would definitely recommend you know, applying to uh, a wide net. I, if you're not a good applicant, I would uh, try to focus on you know one to few places, um, especially if you're lucky enough to uh, train in a city that has multiple radiation oncology uh, departments and training programs. Um, get to know those people very, very, very well. I've definitely known people who were not uh, the strongest applicants, but, you know, they worked really hard at one particular place. They did that over a number of years. For example, they uh, spent their first their first year after med school, after your M1 year, they did research in the radiation oncology department. Then they continued working with them for the next three years and worked hard. And, you know, if you show that you're going to continue to work hard and help publish the radiation oncology residency program is much more willing to take a candidate they know well who can produce, even if your grades might not be the top or if your board scores might not be the top. If uh, they already know what they're getting and they like what they're getting, it's a lot of motivation for them to, to keep you there. So, you know, on paper, paper is just one thing. And I would also, um, I don't know how much people still go on to those forums like SDN. <laughs> um, I don't know if you want to cut that out, but... Uh, <laughs> The uh, the things that people post online, I can think I think can be very demoralizing to most candidates because there's a there's a publication bias there. You know the yeah. the bottom twenty percent of people who get into a specialty are not the ones who post their board scores and post their their grades and what med school they went to and the number of publications. There are certainly people who were not top of their class or not AOA or uh, didn't. Uh, get 240 board scores or didn't have multiple first author publications uh, or didn't have a PhD. There are definitely a lot of those people out there that got into programs. It only takes one place. So if it's something that you're really, really, really passionate about, I would just work hard at establishing a very good relationship with with one person, one place where um, you have a, you think you can, you know, ultimately get yourself in. Uh, especially if they take multiple residents per year. If you have a place that takes, let's say, three a year, it's a lot easier for them to take one internal candidate, even if your numbers might not be the best, because one internal candidate is uh, very easy for uh, a place to take when they have multiple other spots as well. 
for the osteopathic students listening to this who are interested in radiation oncology, what sort of negative bias do you see towards the DOs? Well, I'll be very honest with you. Um, I actually know multiple DO physicians uh, who are radiation oncologists. Um, and that is definitely the exception, um, but it certainly is possible. Um, again, more than anything, I think the most important thing is to establish that relationship with a program that you feel like you could get into um, and just work at that, uh, work hard at getting in at that one place. Um, that, that can take years of creating that relationship. Um, if you don't get into, for example, a program right out of uh, medical school, you could take a year off and uh, find a place where you can do a, uh, a research fellowship for a year at a place that has a track record for taking on their own fellows. If you can p publish a lot and get a lot of work done during that year of research, um, places will be more likely to be willing to take you. So what opportunities are there available to subspecialize? Subspecialization, um, pediatrics is what I do, and that's one of the options. Other option uh, for people who really want to do procedures, there's brachytherapy, uh, which is internal radiation. And internal radiation is uh, basically, uh, it could be prostate or breast or GYN. Um, those are brachytherapy areas where you could basically be a radiation oncologist and spend a lot of your time just doing procedures. So that is uh, a second area. And then in general, at any academic center, people tend to specialize in one or two different organ sites just because there's so many people in an academic facility that are specialized in doing research in an area. They tend to you know, treat those areas where they're doing the research. So they'll treat maybe one or two disease sites, depending on how big that program is. So then that just becomes ultimately where you end up working or what kind of research you do. So that's just basically what ends up happening if you do academia. But in general, outside of that, brachytherapy and like pediatrics are two of the areas that you can really subspecialize in where that our experiences are really different from other radiation oncologists. Like 98% of radiation oncologists treat almost zero pediatrics uh, a year, maybe 99%. So for all those who don't do it, they basically can go the rest of their lives and never treating a single child. Uh, and then those who do treat kids tend to get all the kids. So then they can actually end up having uh, potentially a busier practice if they're at a place with high pediatric volume. For the primary care, future primary care doc that's listening to this, what do you wish primary care physicians knew about radiation oncology? Um, first, I would like them to know that we're not diagnostic radiologists. We are a completely separate specialty. Second is that radiation is a part of cancer care. And Sometimes I feel like doctors think that radiation is a backup option, and I've, I've seen and heard it so many times where uh, somebody will find out that a patient had prostate cancer and they didn't have surgery, so they had radiation, or that they had radiation and they must have, uh, not ha they must have had radiation because they couldn't have had surgery. Radiation is just a different modality of treatment, so um, it is not necessarily better than any other form. It is different, and different types of diseases require different treatments, and often there are different treatments that are equivalent, one of which is for prostate cancer. In general, radiation and surgery have equivalent outcomes. They have never 
we've never had any randomized study that's been able to show any difference between the two, uh, just in general. And so it is an integral portion of the cancer management uh, of so many people. I mean, cancer is the number two cause of death in the country uh, as a general category, yet radiation oncology is the least known uh, treatment arm in terms of uh, the physicians, because we are a very, very small specialty. One physician can treat, you know, many patients. So uh, we're just not necessarily as visible as uh, other specialties like medical oncology, which are specialists from internal medicine, or surgical oncologists who are general surgeons. So, um, and there's usually multiple of them. There's often just one radiation oncologist in an area, and um, that one radiation oncologist will show up at tumor board amongst like 50 other doctors. Uh, it is a very important integral portion of, of patients' cancer care. And uh, in general, we like to be involved early uh, on in the management of somebody's care so we can help with the decision-making process uh, at the outset. What other specialties do you work the closest with? So me personally, um, medical oncology or pediatric oncology, and then the surgeons, and they're actually neurosurgeons in particular because I treat mostly brain tumors. What do you like the most about being a radiation oncologist? Well, I like being able to play a very important role in people's lives. A lot of people think that my job is really sad because I'm taking care of kids with cancer. Uh, On the other hand, I uh, feel I'm very lucky to be able to be here to help these people uh, for something that's such an important thing. And obviously not all kids get better, but when you have the opportunity to help the quality of life of some of them and save the lives of many others, um, that's more rewarding than anything else. What do you like the least? Insurance. It's no question. (laughs) That's everybody's least favorite. Yeah. My specialty uh, using protons, unfortunately, basically it gets its own special categorization and we have to uh, fight for approval for every single one of our patients. It's not like we can have a contract with an insurance, but just because we have a contract with them uh, doesn't at all indicate that they would accept to pay for the treatment. So I end up having to write letters and appeal for basically every single patient I uh, I treat. And this process takes weeks. And unfortunately, a lot of patients, their disease can actually progress in the waiting period uh, and that is really, really, really frustrating. Or they end up having to go back and get treatment with uh, x-ray radiation, which uh, could have started weeks earlier had they uh, had we not been waiting for proton approval. Um, so it's uh, incredibly frustrating um, because you really want to be able to help patients. Yet they, we get a lot of pushback uh, from the payers, and it makes it very hard to, to provide medical care. Is that because there's not enough data out there to show that it's useful or is it just a very expensive treatment and so they're trying to do their best to not pay it? It's both. Part of the problem with the data is there there were only like five proton centers up until, let's say, five years ago or Mm. so. Uh, But some of them have been around for a long time, but there's just not a bunch of data. There's definitely enough data for certain things where there should be absolutely no question. But Still, uh, it is much more expensive than the alternative x-ray radiation. So it gets pigeonholed because it's a line item that just has a significant variance in price. But the long-term value of protons, especially for children's cancers and children's brain tumors, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, The long-term toxicities of x-ray radiation for somebody who needs radiation, for example, to the whole brain and spine. Uh, X-rays will go through their heart and their lungs, their 
intestine, stomach, pancreas, potentially even the ovaries. And you can use protons and there's no radiation delivered to the thorax, abdomen, and pelvis. Um, it's just remarkable how much safer it is. So there's clearly a long lifetime value. And that's why actually in uh, other countries, like England is building two or three proton centers right now because they know that there's a value of saving patients from long-term morbidity. But here in the States, uh, the, the payer system is, is different. And so uh, the private payers actually are the ones that are most difficult to uh, get approval often. And then for the uh, like Medicaid patients, that's just a, a very challenging process just to get approval just in general. Um, there's so many different policies. and um, But ultimately, it's a, it's a very small portion of medicine, and it just gets... Uh, pigeonholed and kind of blackballed, whereas you know, a lot of other things in medicine can be very expensive, but have a lot of people behind it uh, and show a very small difference uh, in studies and become considered standard of care and then insurances pay for it. For example, Avastin. Uh, Avastin is a very, very expensive medication that is used for a number of cancers, um, often as an additional agent um, in addition to other chemotherapeutic agents. I mean, the cumulative cost of Avastin in this country is just unbelievable. Um, it would just absolutely blow out, blow away the cost of, of all proton radiation facilities combined. Um, but Avastin in general um, is not even a cytotoxic agent. It's an anti-angiogenic agent, which prevents or slows down growth of tumors. Um, so it's in general, an adjunctive uh, treatment, uh, whereas radiation, proton radiation, is a definitive curative management uh, with decreased long-term morbidity. Um, but we don't have a strong force behind us. It's a very small group of people. Uh, things in medical oncology are standing behind thousands and thousands and thousands of medical oncologists that all have access to a medication. Uh, protons is uh, a form of radiation that is only available to that's uh, a very small percentage of radiation oncologists, not just a small percentage of physicians, but even radiation oncologists were a very small percentage. So um, there's even a lot of internal politics within our own specialty of other physicians and radiation oncology not in support of uh, proton radiation, primarily because they don't all have access to it. What do you wish you knew before going into radiation oncology that you know now? Uh, very interesting. So... The one thing that I wish I knew better um, is how much um, how reliant uh, your practice can be on you as a physician. Um, for example, if I take a, a week of vacation, uh, in my place, it's uh, it's a small practice of three physicians, uh, and I'm the only one who treats the kids. It's more challenging. Uh, if I were at a solo practice all by myself, it can be very challenging to leave. Um, if you're at a big academic center, it's a little bit, it's, it's a lot easier to take vacation because there are a lot of other people there, uh, even often within your own uh, like subspecialty who can cover. But in general, uh, in radiation oncology, there's um, a strong requirement for the physician to actually be around. Um, it's not like a shift work specialty where, you know, you walk out the door and there's nothing left to worry about. Um, I can have a whole bunch of work and I can have days where I'm at work very late, dictating very late, contouring very late, and I might have to do the same thing the next day. There's also certain requirements by Medicare that there's actually a radiation oncologist who's 
in the facility anytime a patient is treated. So if you're working in a small town, um, or let's pretend you're one radiation oncologist and there's two small towns, let's say 45 minutes away, um, a lot of physicians will go to one practice in the morning and another practice in the afternoon. Nowadays, and this is just coming down the regulatory pathways right now, but you need to have a physician at both places all day long. That really limits your ability to uh, run a practice when you can't physically be at two places at the same time, even if the volume at one of them is not very much and the other one is not very much either. So um, this is actually one of the more challenging things about our specialty is that we are they are basically dependent on us physically being uh, available anytime patients are being treated. And it's just a lot harder to walk away from um, a kind of a job in terms of just taking a day off or taking a week off or, I mean, taking a month off. This is kind of, uh, you can't even consider doing that in our specialty, um, at least not easily. So um, in other specialties where, for example, it's shift work, um, you have a lot more control over your life and a lot more control over how much you want to work. Um, and that's something I would take into more consideration. Um, could I, should I have the opportunity to go back? Yeah, being able to have a specialty that where I could just work shift work and just, you know, work one day a week, if I felt like it, that would be, that would be nice to have that option in the future. My specialty doesn't really work that way. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a radiation oncologist? I don't know. I like my job overall. I think I would probably, if I if I knew everything that I know now about everything, finance and just managing your, like being able to control your own lifestyle, I think I would favor a specialty that allowed me more freedom to not work, which would be something like diagnostic radiology. Probably be top of my list. My wife's a diagnostic radiologist. Um, and she has a very, very, very sustainable lifestyle. She, um, basically she goes into work at eight o'clock and she's usually done by four thirty, basically every day, uh, never has to worry about working late. She works like one evening shift, uh, every couple of weeks or so. And that's like four to 10 PM. Uh, she works one weekend every six weeks. It's a very sustainable job. She could cut back to 60% at any time. And ultimately, as a radiologist, uh, you have a computer-based specialty. So you could work from home and work um, as an independent contractor as much or as little as you wanted to, uh, should you want to do that. Um, my specialty requires a machine, and so I don't really have that flexibility. So uh, I think there is certainly a cost of losing some of that freedom. Um, I certainly feel like overall I get compensated for it. Um, especially like in private practice. Um, but in academia, um, I don't know if it's uh, compensated as well. So having that freedom, I think definitely gives an, a substantially higher value to specialties like radiology, ER, anesthesia. Do you see any major changes coming to radiation oncology, whether that's new therapies, new technologies? That is interesting. So the medical oncology world, um, targeted therapies, immunotherapy are really the, the big thing these days. I mean, they are really taking over cancer. They're finding more and more indications for different uh, immune therapies. Um, I think the future of radiation is really finding how radiation and these immunotherapies work well in concert with each other. 
um, some of that information is starting to come out, but I think that's uh, uh, really going to change the the future of radiation treatment. Um, proton radiation is probably the biggest question mark. Um, there are a lot more places opening in general because the cost has come down a little bit, um, but we haven't gotten to the level, volume of proton facilities that uh, we have the critical mass that it becomes ultimately ubiquitously available. It's kind of on a on a tipping point where in the next few years, you know, we could go the way where in, we aren't getting approved for treatments even more than we are now, or more than, it's getting harder and harder potentially over the next few years. And it could be that proton centers shut down because they're just not uh, financially viable. Um, alternatively, they be, could become uh, cheap enough or they might become more easily able to get uh, treatments approved and become more financially viable. But they are very, very, very expensive. Uh, there have been two, um, well, there was one proton center that shut down just within the past couple of years and another one just declared bankruptcy uh, uh, earlier this year. It is very hard to stay in the black, especially um, at places that took on a lot of debt to get going. And if your treatments are not getting approved for coverage. So we will see uh, where we are 10, 20 years from now, it could be that we have 100 proton centers 20 years from now. It could be that we have less than we do today. So with that extreme optimism, what last words of wisdom do you have for somebody who's interested in radiation oncology? If you're interested in radiation, I think the most important thing is to meet people who are in the specialty and start working with them in any way you can during your time as a med student. So if you can find a way to start doing research with them uh, in the summer of your first year, or if you can rotate with them, you know, let's say in your third year, or if you can work on doing some research on the weekends or something just to get in the door at a facility, that is probably the most valuable thing you can do is do research in medical school with your radiation oncology department that gets somewhere, gets presented at Astro or gets published even, that would be be great. But really develop and foster those relationships and try to keep those relationships as positive as possible. You know, try to groom that into them wanting to keep you on there for another another five years or another four years. Um, basically, if you are ever spending time with somebody that you could be working with in the future, you should be considering that as an interview or an audition and if you're working with them for like a whole summer, your entire summer is an audition. So you have to take that opportunity and really leverage that to the best you possibly can because that's an opportunity that you can't let go to waste. All right, so there you have it, pediatric radiation oncology with Dr. Victor Mangona. If you are interested in radiation oncology, pediatric radiation oncology, if you love physics, apparently you have to love physics and uh, do well at physics to pass the physics board. It's pretty crazy that there's a math test to be a doctor, but hey, it's radiation oncology. You're like firing laser beams at people or something. We didn't uh, dive into the actual <laughs> lasers in the episode, but anyway, um, check it out if you're interested in it. If you're not, if you're going into primary care, Victor had uh, some good messages for you as well. Hope you got a lot of great information out of this episode. As I said at the beginning, I would love for you to share this with your classmates, with your advisors, whoever it may be, who you think would benefit from listening to these episodes. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.